Speaking of movies, there's a movie called The Great Debaters, and it is based on the true story of a guy named Melvin B. Tolson. He was the speech and debate teacher at Wiley College. Now, Wiley College was a college started in the 1930s for African Americans in Texas. And he was their speech and debate uh, teacher. Now, this is a true story. In 1935, his school's very first debate team ever went all the way to the national championship where they beat the team from Harvard. It's an amazing story. And I love what he explains in this clip from the movie because it's an idea that can change your life. Watch this. Anybody know who Willie Lynch was? Anybody? Raise your hand. He was a vicious slave owner in the West Indies. The slave masters in the colony of Virginia were having trouble controlling their slaves, so they sent for Mr. Lynch to teach them his methods. Keep the slave physically strong, but psychologically weak and dependent on the slave master. Keep the body, take the mind. I and every other professor on this campus are here to help you to find, take back, and keep your righteous mind. I love that. Well, I and every other pastor here on this campus are here to help you find, take back, and keep your righteous mind. Look at the first verse. Amen? Look at the first verse in your notes. These are notes that are in your bulletins that were handed to you as you came in. It's also on the screen. And I want us all to read this verse out loud together because this is sort of the theme for this morning. Let me hear you read Romans 12 too. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. God says, what you believe, you become. And if I may be so bold this morning, some of you are believing lies. You are believing lies from your slave master. You are believing lies intended to keep you psychologically and spiritually weak. Well, as your pastor, I want to say that changes today. We have been in this series called Fuel Since Mother's Day about filling up your empty tank. And some of you came to church today just empty. Some of you came because it's just what you do. You're visiting from out of town. That is awesome. But some of you walked in today so busy in your day-to-day -day lives. I mean, summer's coming, you're doing spring cleaning, you're preparing for vacation, your school is ending, and so you've got to do all the last-minute assignments. I mean, your kids have to do all the last-minute assignments. You know what I'm talking about, parents. And it's just been such a busy life. You've been super busy, yet spiritually, you're empty. And you walked in that door dying to know what is the key to getting some spiritual vitality in my life again. You walked in that door longing to know what's the key to real, lasting change. How can my soul have a revival? Well, this morning we're going to talk about rebuilding your spiritual life. And I want you to meet some underachievers who became real hyperactive overachievers, and yet still we're missing the most important fuel of all until one legendary day. And the Bible tells a story in the book of Nehemiah, chapters 8, 9, and 10. And to set the stage for those chapters, to give you the historical context, I want to take a trip into time and go way back 
about 3,000 years. I want to take you to 1,000 B.C. The nation of Israel is reaching its peak right around the time of David and Solomon. I mean, they're worshiping in Solomon's temple. They're loving the Lord. They're abandoning idolatry. But right after that, it starts a steady spiritual decline for 400 years. And the nation's history is typified by tyrannical kings and morally compromised people and a forgotten temple of God. And finally, in 586 B.C., the morally withered nation of Israel cannot stand up to anyone anymore. And the Babylonian army rolls into Jerusalem and crushes the city, makes it into a pile of rubble. And the Jews become slaves to the stronger nations all around them. And those nations feed them a steady diet of propaganda like, you Israelites are over, finished. You can never rebuild your city. Your God has abandoned you. Follow other gods like our pagan gods. Just give up. Now, my question is, can you relate to that? Some of you are living in rubble and hearing those exact same lies today. Why even try anymore? You are over. Finished. Rubble. Well, into that scene, a man named Ezra walks. Although this is the book of Nehemiah, he walks into this scene years before Nehemiah ever gets there. He strolls into the ruined city, and he looks around, and the Bible says he sat down in the rubble and wept for the state that he saw his city in. And he cries out to God, we have been so stupid. We have brought all this on ourselves by our sins. And then Ezra gets up very motivated and he preaches to the people, you know what we need to do? We need to return to God. And what do you think happens next? Not much. Because the people hear Ezra's words and they start this kind of half-hearted revival that apparently peters out almost instantly. Why? By now, I'm thinking they're used to living in rubble. They're used to failure. They're used to weakness. They're used to believing all the lies their slave masters are telling them. And then Nehemiah shows up. This is somebody who had been working in the king's court in Babylon. He's used to success. He is a high achiever. He has charisma. But he's a Jew, and he wants the people to rebuild the walls of the city, and he makes these people feel like they haven't felt in 80 years. And he says, let's be great again. Let's rebuild the walls. Now, you've got to remember, these walls have been in rubble for two generations. They've started rebuilding them, and then they've stopped. They just had this legacy of failure and against incredible opposition, against enemies who are spreading propaganda and literally taking pot shots at the builders of the wall so that they have to have half the people guarding the workers while they build. Amazingly, in just 52 days, these people are able to do what the people hadn't been able to do for 80 years before this, and the wall is finished. But now Nehemiah has a problem because these people have a finished wall, but he looks at them and they are gassed. They are running on empty. They are tapped out. They are wiped. They are drained 
after that kind of amazing, hyperactive achievement, they desperately need to refuel. And what we've been doing in this fuel series is looking at different events in the Bible where people needed to fill up again. And we're going to see what God does for these people. We looked at Jesus. We looked at Elijah. Now we're looking at Nehemiah this morning because it slowly dawns on Nehemiah that these people need more than just a new city wall. That after all this effort, they are living in a gleaming new city. Their status has changed. Their security has improved. But they haven't changed at all, really. Not inside. And it's been dawning on Nehemiah, the main problem that these people have is not a building problem. The main problem is they have a spiritual problem. They're still lying and cheating and stealing from each other. They've been living in fear. They need a spiritual mind renewal. And now Nehemiah's got a real challenge, much harder than building the wall around the city in 52 days. Because let me ask you some questions. I'm going to ask you, which is more difficult, A or B? And I want you to shout out the answers. Which is more difficult, A or B? A, buying a house, or B, turning that house into a loving home? What's more difficult? B, even at Santa Cruz prices, B is harder, right? Which is more difficult, A, constructing a church building, or B, building a God-glorifying, loving church within its walls? What's more, what's more difficult? It's B, or back to our story, which is more difficult, A, fixing a broken down wall, or B, rebuilding the faltering spiritual lives of the people working on that wall? What's, what's harder? It's B every single time. So Nehemiah knows he's got his work cut out for him. If he doesn't renew their minds with God's word, they're still going to be slaves in a nice, new, gleaming city. What they need is to rediscover their identity. They need to relearn God's promises. And so that's where we pick up the story. That's the background to what happens here in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. Nehemiah calls for everybody in the city to gather at a place called the Watergate. Yes, Watergate. And it's in the Bible. But he says, we're going to have a citywide gathering at the Watergate. And so the people who are exhausted from 52 days of work, they're running on empty, they all gather, and they see, the Bible says, they see that a platform's been built, curious, and on top of the platform, there's an elevated kind of a speaker stand, and there's steps leading up to it, and they figure, well, I guess Nehemiah's going to stand up there and give us another one of his pep talks. But that is not what happens. Actually, Nehemiah hardly says a word, except for a word of introduction for about half a sentence. He basically says, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce to you my close personal friend, our general contractor for our next building project, Ezra the high priest. And people go, what? And Nehemiah says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to listen to Ezra read the scriptures sentence by sentence. Now, this had not been done in decades in this city. In fact, if you read through the lines in the book of Nehemiah, you discover that these are basically secular people. These people have never heard the Bible read and have never read it for themselves before in their lives, ever. It's brand new to these people. These people have never worshipped God. These are people who've never gone to the temple to, to honor God. And so they're like, what? We're being dragged to a church service? What's this going to be? We're builders. We're not churchgoers. And you wouldn't believe what happens next. Because the meeting goes gangbusters. The people with their mouths open like this just hang on every word. They not only listen to the scriptures, they allow the scriptures to come into their minds and renew them. 
and wash over their hearts and cleanse their souls. And before you know it, the people are really moved. Some of them, it says, get emotional and start weeping. And other people get on their knees and bow low before the God whose wisdom was suddenly so overpowering that in that moment, hour after hour, it was so powerfully mind-altering. And then after about six hours of this, the whole group just stands up together and starts worshiping God and singing. And I mean, most of these people, again, have never sung a worship song in their lives. And they just are like, yes, God is great. And it is spiritual, full-on revival. And that is what makes their nation strong again, not their walls. And you know what? We're going to do exactly what they did in this passage today. Whether you're here live in the auditorium, you're watching on video in the venue service, we're going to actually not just learn what they did, we're going to actually do what they did. Because in this story, you see six indispensable elements of spiritual renewal. See, maybe you remember how you used to feel alive when you sang worship songs to God. You used to feel a love for God and a love for reading the Bible, but it's faded. And now you feel like my moral walls in my life have been compromised. I need to renew my righteous mind. Well, do it this way. What transformed these people? Let's do what they did today. Number one, jot this down in your notes. Don't miss this. To renew your mind, get together with people. You can't do it alone. Get together with people. The good news is just by showing up, you're already doing point one, right? We're doing this one right now. Now, why is this so important? Because you can look around and go, hey, I'm not alone, right? We're all in the same boat. For example, maybe you feel guilty today that you messed up this last week, even though you knew better. And you're sitting here going, I don't even deserve to be here today. I'm a hypocrite because I messed up this last week and I knew better. Let me just ask for a quick show of hands, kind of a mass confession here in church. And you are in church, so you do have to tell the truth, okay? <laughs> show of hands, how many of you have ever in your life messed up even though you knew better? Can I see a show of hands? Now wait, leave those hands up because I want you to look around. Look, you people. You are, either you're going, I'm in good hands, or you're very frightened right now. But still, we're all in the same boat. That is very important. That's why Nehemiah has these people start in a big group. That's why the Bible says, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. There's something about the gathering that is inspiring. So don't miss the truth in verse 1 of Nehemiah 8, where it says, all the people assembled as one in the square before the water gate. And that was a lot of people, by the way. In the previous chapter, Nehemiah numbers all these people by family. And if you add everybody together, men, women, children, and slaves who are all there in the square, it's uh, over 47,000 people. So it's a massive group. And then it says Ezra, he's the high priest, he brings the law, that's the first five books of the Bible, before the assembly, which was made up of men and women, and all who were able to understand. Now, incidentally, if you read the book of Nehemiah, you'll be struck by the number of times that Nehemiah uses the phrase men and women. He talks about those working on the walls were men and women. Those people supporting those who were working on the walls were men and women. The people worshiping your together were men and women. Fascinating how he emphasizes the role of women throughout this book. But check this out. This is going to be the very first in their lives that most of these people have ever heard anything 
from the Bible, which was basically forgotten at this point. And that brings us right to point two, to renew your mind, get into God's word, get into the Bible. It says, he, Ezra, read it aloud from daybreak until noon, and all the people listened attentively. I mean, they were riveted for hours. Why? Think of what they are hearing in the first five books of the Bible. For the very first time, they are hearing people of Israel. Yeah, that's us. God chose you. You're God's chosen people. And God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. And God says, I have an everlasting covenant with you. And God says, I have plans for you. And God says, I have instructions for you. And they're going, really, me? Yeah, you. And those are the exact same things that you and I discover are true of us as believers when we read God's word too. And I love this next part. The Levites instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there, watch this, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. Now, why did they need to do this? Simple. They were literally translating the Bible. They were reading the Bible in Hebrew, and most of these people we know historically were from Babylon, the Babylonian captivity. They'd been there for two generations. They spoke the Babylonian languages. They didn't even speak Hebrew anymore, many of them. And so the Levites are literally trying to translate and not just woodenly translate, but give the sense. This is the very first expository preaching we ever find in history, and it's right here in the book of Nehemiah. Let me just kind of give you a fun example of why this is very important, why you can't just woodenly translate something. I don't know if you've seen the website innocentenglish.com, but uh, it has a bunch of examples of uh, bad translations into English from other languages. And this is a subject that is near and dear to my heart because, as you know, I grew up in a family where all my relatives spoke Swiss German, and so I heard daily examples of this in our, in our house. But I love some of these examples from innocentenglish.com of mangled translations. For example, in a Bucharest hotel lobby, the lift is being fixed for the next day. During that time, we regret that you will be unbearable. I love that. <laughs> On the menu of a Swiss restaurant, our wines leave you nothing to hope for. <laughs> Outside a Hong Kong tailor shop, ladies have fits upstairs. <laughs> I think I know what they meant, but... In an advertisement by a Hong Kong dentist, teeth extracted by the latest Methodists. Back to Switzerland in a Swiss mountain inn, special today, no ice cream. And finally, in a Copenhagen airline ticket office, we take your bags and send them in all directions. I think I've used this airline by mistake, actually, but... My point is, woodenly literal translation doesn't always work. So the Levites are translating and explaining, right? Now, these days in America, we have a different problem with the Bible. I just found an article. Uh, the Bible has never been so accessible. According to the Guinness Book of World Records, listen to this, L. Ron Hubbard's writings of Scientology have been translated into 65 languages. The Book of Mormon is in about 100 languages. But 2,656 languages have all or some of the Bible. That's amazing. Some 65 million copies of the Bible are bought or distributed in the U.S. every year. Nothing else is even a close second. It's always the number one bestseller every single year. The average American house has at least three Bibles, 
So people cheer the Bible. People endorse the Bible. People buy the Bible. People gift the Bible. People own the Bible. They just don't read the Bible in America. That's the problem. And I'll give you some evidence for this. I just saw this Gallup poll, right? According to George Gallup, only one-third of those surveyed in America know who delivered the Sermon on the Mount. And of course, that was who? They said somewhat tentatively, yes, it was Jesus. <laughs> Fewer than half can name the first book of the Bible, which was what? They said with a little bit more confidence. Uh, 80% of born-again Christians believe the phrase, God helps those who help themselves, is in the Bible. Shout it out if you know who said this. It was Benjamin Franklin. That's right. Benjamin Franklin. But my point is, don't become a statistic here in America. Actually pick up your Bible and read it. Let me ask you a question. If you, if you use a physical Bible, what does it look like these days? Is it worn? Are its pages dog-eared? Do you write notes in it? Do you put post-it notes in it? I hope you do all those things. I hope it's used up and worn out because it's not made to be pristine sitting on a shelf. It's made to be used. Or maybe you use a Bible app. I hope you do if you have a smartphone, an Android, or an iPhone or something. There's all kinds of free Bible apps you can download so that everywhere you go, wherever you are, you can always just, just pop that thing open and read some more Bible verses. Listen, I'm not trying to put a guilt trip on you. It's just been my experience that the renewing of my righteous mind happens better the more time I spend in God's Word. If, listen, if you get enough of the Bible in your head over a long enough period of time, it's almost like having earbuds in hooked up to, like, the Bible pod. And throughout the course of your day, you can just hear the wisdom of God speaking to you in your brain. So get into the Bible. Find a contemporary translation. Saturate yourself in it. If you don't have one, we always have contemporary paperback Bibles available for you for free at the information desk right here in the lobby and in the visitor center at the flagpoles. Pick one up. This isn't for you to add to your 15 Bibles that are on a shelf already at your house. This is if you don't have a Bible. We have them available to you for free. Bring it to you, to, with you to church on weekends. Take notes in the notes. Do the daily meditations every day. Plug into a small group. Do whatever it takes to get into the Word, like we've been doing here this morning. So to renew their minds, these people get together. We've done that today. They get into God's Word. We're doing that right now. And then they get focused through worship. Check this out. First, it happens to Ezra. Imagine this guy's emotions. He's been trying to reach these people for years. And then when he sees their response, that they're riveted at God's Word, he just gets overwhelmed. It says, Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And then it spreads. And then all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. And then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord. And worship breaks out like wildfire. Now, why is worship of God so important to renewing your righteous mind? Because it focuses you on the power of God, not on your own power. I heard somebody say, changing your life without worship is like trying to steer your ship by looking at the deck instead of the stars. And I really like that. See, a lot of what gets called spirituality these days, especially here in Santa Cruz, a lot of well-meaning Santa Cruz spirituality is just navel-gazing, right? I gotta find myself. 
I gotta figure out what I, who I really am. But listen, if you just navel gaze, you know, you get a really clean navel, but your soul doesn't, you don't get your mind renewed. So don't just navel gaze, God gaze. And I wanna do this right now. We practiced the first two points. I wanna practice this point. I'm gonna invite the band right back up here, live in the auditorium, live over there in venue where they're watching us on video right now. And we're gonna do this. The bands are going to play the role of the Levites and lead the people in worship. And we have somebody here who is going to play the role of Ezra the high priest. Do you know who it is? It's Jesus. Because the Bible says for Christians, Jesus is always spiritually present in a gathering. So Jesus is here, and he is here to lead you into worship. Look what happens in Nehemiah. Standing on the stairs were the Levites, who said, stand up and praise the Lord your God. So why don't we do what they talk about here? Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. And look at what they say. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens and all their starry hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. Think of all that that encompasses. You give life to everything and the multitudes of heaven worship you and now we get to join the multitudes of heaven and everything that's in the sea and the starry host and worship our great God. Lift your voices as we sing to him right now.
are so good, and we praise you for your greatness in the universe and your greatness to us. In Jesus, your son's name, amen. And you may be seated. Well, I hope that you're getting kind of a little bit of a sense of what is happening here in this book as we literally try to act out our version of this, right? The people are getting together with other people. They, they see their friends. They hear the word of God expounded. They're moved by it. The Levites or the priestly worship leaders come up onto the stage that Nehemiah had built, and they lead the people in worship, and, and something begins to happen in the hearts of these people. Maybe you felt it too just now where you're worshiping God and you're thinking of the greatness of God, but then what occurs to you is, I'm so puny compared to my great God. And not only puny, but I'm so unrighteous and unclean compared to my holy God. And that's the kind of emotion that these people start to feel. They feel small in a good way before God when they worship. And that's when they get to number four, get real with God. They confess, they open up, they say as a group, God, we are so messed up. They say, because of our sins, we are in great distress. And they're just so honest about the condition of their souls, and this is so healthy to do. Even 12-step programs talk about this, right? Coming clean, confession. And so I want to practice this right now, too, right here. I just kind of want you to unburden yourself of some of those hidden sins that you haven't uh, maybe confessed to God in a while. So turn to your neighbors and confess those sins to them if you wouldn't mind. No, just kidding. That's not what I'm going to do right now. Right? Okay, you can relax. But here's how we're going to practice this. Just in quietness before God, in personal private prayer with Him, with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I want you to get real. And while we have that time of confession, we're going to ask the communion servers to pass communion because when Christians confess, we do it in light of the fact that Jesus promises that our sins have been forgiven because he paid the price on the cross. And he is here with us now as we take communion to intercede for us and to counsel and comfort us. And so the communion servers during this next song are going to pass communion down the rows. And today I'll ask you to take a piece of the little bread and a cup, but don't partake quite yet. Hold on to them and meditate and confess your sins to God while everybody receives them. And then at the end of the song, once everybody has received the elements, we're going to partake together. But as you do, quietly examine yourself and confess the exact nature of your wrongdoing to God, just as the people did in Nehemiah. So let's serve communion now, and let's have a time of confession of sin to God.
today, right now, are so hungry and thirsty for this. And I don't mean the little piece of bread and the little cup of juice. I mean you are starving for the assurance of forgiveness of sin that Jesus gives to you through the act that this bread and this cup represent. That sin that you've been confessing to God, the way that you fell maybe this past week or something that's had its claws on you for a long time. Jesus said, I died for your sins, including that one. And that one on the cross was nailed there so that you can die to that and be raised to newness of life. And you're forgiven. Take this in gratitude to God for that marvelous truth. Jesus said his body was broken for you for that reason. Let's partake of this bread together. Thank you, Lord. And Jesus said his blood was shed for you so that you can be a new creation. If you just trust in Christ, don't, you don't have to understand how it works. But you say, Jesus, that sounds good to me. Count me in. A mustard seed of faith, his blood cleanses you from all unrighteousness. Let's thank him as we partake of the cup together. God, we do need you. Thank you that you satisfy our need. In the name of our Savior, Jesus, we thank you. Amen. Well, now at this point in the story, an amazing and kind of a funny thing happens. Because this group of people that has lived basically uninterested and ignorant of faith in any way is on this day so caught up in the, the wonders of God, so excited that God has plans for them, that they, they've heard his commandments and his instructions for the first time. They do something that comes from a genuine place in their hearts, but it almost sounds a little funny or naive to us looking at, at what they do. They actually uh, write a contract with God. They have some lawyers come out and write a literal contract with God. And they say, we're going to use this contract to make a public commitment to follow God with all of our heart. And that is number five. I need to get serious about my commitment. And commitment time is good. We have commitment time in our church services because times of commitment help you get specific. A lot of us are stalled out in our spiritual growth because we never make a specific commitment. We say things like, oh, yeah, that, that really felt good. I really felt God today. Great church service, wonderful worship, okay? But what does that mean you will change specifically? Times of commitment help to change emotion into action. And so commitment is a key to renewing your righteous mind. And these people say, in view of all of this, we're going to make a binding agreement. And they write out this literal contract with God and, and a line forms and one by one, they step up to the contract and they sign their family name to the contract. The scripture says, until everybody had signed it. So what's in this contract? Well, they said, we assume the responsibility. Now stop right there. 
Because if they had stopped right there, that would have been such a great key to change all by itself, wouldn't it? No more. It's not my fault. I'm a victim. It's because of the way I was raised. It's because my parents didn't love me. No, they said, no. You know, we've had some bad breaks, but we are over the victim mindset. We assume the responsibility. Can you say that about whatever you need to change in your life? We, we admit what we need. We assume the responsibility to do what? Well, the next phrase summarizes their intent for carrying out the commands, and then they get into the details of the commands of God that they want to carry out. And it's a good thing as far as it goes. It really focuses on the Sabbath. That's really the point of their whole commitment because they suddenly realize, what? God has instituted this amazing thing, a day off every week to worship him. That's awesome, designed to refuel us. And, and, and then once in a while, he's going to give us whole weeks where, where the whole nation just goes off and lives in tents and, and eats and drinks and rejoices and relaxes. Wow, God is great. We are stoked. We are going to do that. We're going to celebrate the weekly Sabbath and take a day off once a week. And we're going to rejoice and celebrate the annual festivals. That's wonderful because we need this kind of spiritual refueling. So we're committed to keeping that Sabbath. Sadly, this is the exact point where in the next centuries, these people begin to go wrong. Because these people in this country go from license before this to legalism after this. From not keeping the Sabbath at all to keeping the Sabbath legalistically. They kind of overshoot the mark and go from irreligion into hyper-religion. They went from being sinners, missing the point, to being religious people, missing the point. And by the time Jesus comes on the scene 500 years later, once again, the Sabbath is fueling no one. Oh, they're keeping it, but it's draining everybody because they've been so serious about this commitment to keep the Sabbath that they come up with all kinds of extra rules to make sure they keep the Sabbath, to make absolutely certain that they do not work on that day. And uh, some of you know some of these rules, rules like do, you cannot gargle on the Sabbath. That was one of their rules because drinking isn't work, but gargling, that's work. So no gargling. Another rule was you can't look in the mirror on a Sabbath. Now, looking in a mirror isn't work, but if you looked in a mirror, you might be tempted to pluck one of your facial hairs. And I know that happens to me all the time. The older I get, the more that happens. And, uh, and they said, and plucking a facial hair, that's work, so no looking in mirrors on the Sabbath. And so they get into all this legalism by the time Jesus comes around. If only they had remembered where they were at spiritually on this day. Because on this day, they were focused not on their effort, but on God's grace. And I'll prove it to you. These verses aren't in your notes, but look at the priest's prayer. The whole prayer is basically, despite our sinfulness, God has remained faithful. They said, our ancestors became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they didn't obey your commands in Nehemiah 9, 16 through 20. But you're a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them, even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, this is our God, or when they committed awful blasphemies because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths. You gave them water for their thirst. And they go on, the whole point being, even though we were such numbskulls, God is a God of grace, and so we commit ourselves out of gratitude to God for his grace. 
But as I said, by the time of Christ, 500 years later, this had gone from being a commitment based on God's grace to a commitment based on their works. They went from trusting God to trying harder. So don't make the same mistake today. That's one of the things that will drain your spiritual life faster than anything. And one of the reasons I think we make this mistake is because there's two definitions in English of the word commitment, right? Two completely different definitions of the word commitment. One is like the Oakland Raiders motto, commitment to excellence, right? Got to commit, got to work harder, got to put the shoulder to the wheel, the nose to the grindstone, be a better football player. But there's another definition of the word commit, like yeah, we had to commit Aunt Lulu to the asylum. You know, we, uh, I committed myself to the care of the surgeon. It means I give up. I surrender myself to the care of someone else because I can't do it anymore. And that is the kind of commitment that we're talking about here in this point. The people realize we've been unfaithful, so we take full responsibility. There's no excuses. From this day forward, we want to turn our will and our lives over to God. This wasn't about willpower. This was about God power. And I want to give you a chance to have a time of commitment right now. Right now, this may be the hour for you to commit your life, to surrender your life to God. Some of you, I know because I've been talking to you, some of you have been coming for weeks or even months, kind of checking out this Jesus thing, and you've been waiting for that moment to step across the line and say, you know, I have a feeling I'll never understand all of this, but Jesus, I want in. I want to surrender my life to you. Or some of you have been Christians your whole lives, but you've been holding back in some area of your life, some indulgence, some sin, and you've been holding back and not wanting to let Jesus be Lord there. And here's your chance right now to yield that area of your life. God, I believe God brought you here, perhaps for this next moment. For you to say, I know what's been draining me spiritually. It's this thing. And God, I don't have the willpower to overcome it, but I'm turning it over to you right now. I'm going to ask Karen to play. And as she plays right now, let's just have a moment of silent prayer where you can do business with God. And if you feel like, well, I don't have anything I need to commit to God, then pray for those who do. So let's have some silent prayer of commitment, surrender commitment to God right now. Maybe you're ready for the first time in your life to invite Jesus in. Just silently pray, Jesus, I invite you in to be my Lord and Savior. Or maybe you've been a Christian for a while, but you have to pray, Jesus, I've been trying to manage to control some area of my life, but now I see it's out of control. And I want you in control. Today, I agree with you. You are Lord over me. I commit myself to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So before I get to the last point 
I hope you understand that when you feel spiritually dry and empty, it's probably because one of these six areas has gone a little unattended in your life. And I want you to keep these notes and use this almost like a gauge. In other words, you feel spiritually dry or empty. Well, have you been fellowshipping regularly with other believers? If you haven't, you're going to start feeling dry. Have you been in the Word daily? Have you been worshiping God, not just waiting for the weekends, but worshiping God daily? Have you been confessing to God what's going on in your life? Have you been making specific commitments, surrenders to him? You say, well, I think I've been doing those things, but I still feel empty. It may be because you're forgetting the last thing. You see, Nehemiah realizes there's, there's something that he's left out here, and it's important for me, too, because I'm afraid you might leave bummed today or down instead of up. And Nehemiah doesn't want that either. He wants these people to be serious about their faith, but not grave. And I want you to leave not dumped on, but rinsed off. I don't want you to ever leave feeling like you got a handful of bricks, but instead I want you to leave feeling like you got an armload of helium balloons. And how do you get that? Well, you can't forget this final essential aspect of refueling spiritually. Nehemiah says to the people, get ready to celebrate. You got to have those moments of celebration where you're just rejoicing, where you're remembering, you know, to drive down by the beach or up into Henry Cowell or Nicene Marks. Appreciate God's creation. Rejoice in what God has done for you in Christ. Have good food, good eats, right? Look at verse 9. I love this. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, watch this, this day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people have been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. But the people almost won't believe it. It sounds too good to be true. So a second time, Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Don't grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Say that last phrase out loud again with me. Let me hear you. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So important. What's the strength of your spiritual life? It's not the strength of your commitment is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. But the people still don't believe it. So a third time, the Levites calmed all the people saying, be still, for this is a sacred day. Don't grieve, celebrate, rejoice. And finally, the people get it in the next verse. And then all the people went away. They, they left this worship service to eat and drink, much like you at Carpo's in just a few minutes, might I add, to... <laughs> to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. And you know what? The Bible tells you and me to do this too. Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. God wants you to leave lighter on your feet than when you walked in here today because it's all good news. And so you know what? We're going to sing a song of celebration But I hope this song just sort of prepares you for a day of not grieving, a day of joy, a day of choice food and sweet drink and rejoicing in the Lord, celebrating for what he has done for us. And we're going to take the offering while we sing this song of celebration. Let's pray. God, give us the joy of the Lord today as we leave, knowing that you love us, you forgive us. And help us to spread that joy to others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.